Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. As Canada plunges into the third year of the global COVID-19 pandemic, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau must find a way to lead the country through it. But that's not his only challenge. 2021 brought a sharp rise in the cost of living, revealed an unprecedented crisis in the military, a more aggressive China, and Afghanistan collapsed. Where is the government's accountability and what is the way forward? We'll ask the Prime Minister in my year-end interview. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, thank you so much for sitting down with us here uh, in this very grand room just off of Parliament Hill. It's your annual year-end interview. Really big year for you. An election, more pandemic, and your birthday. You are, of course, a Christmas Day baby turning 50. Are you where you wanted to be at this point in life? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm never sure about saying Christmas baby anymore when you're about to turn 50. You know, that's, <laughs> uh, there's a bit of a disjunction there. Listen, this, this past year, uh, like the year before it, has all been around uh, focusing on trying to help Canadians through these very difficult times. COVID a big part of it, but all sorts of other challenges as well. And being... I think incredibly grateful on a personal level that Canadians are in general so thoughtful and present and there for each other that even through the toughest times you have examples of people stepping up and being there uh, that has allowed us to come through some really, really challenging moments. When you look at that, so many Canadians are having a really rough Christmas. Life is expensive right now. Buying a turkey is expensive. There are people who are fully employed and they are barely able to make ends meet. What are you going to do for Canadians specifically to support them who are struggling to pay their basic bills with the you know inflation that we're seeing in Canada and all around the globe? Well, the first thing we said uh, when this pandemic hit is that we would be there to have Canadians' backs. And that has guided us throughout. This inflation crisis we're in, the rising cost of living for people, is a direct response of the impact of the pandemic on the global economy and on Canada. And the best thing we can do to support people is to end this pandemic for good. But and how do you do that as the federal government? That, mm -hmm. I would love for you to end the pandemic. <laughs> I'm sure you would love to end the pandemic, but that's a really tough thing to do. It is, but it involves uh, getting in boosters, uh, which we are doing. It involves supporting the provinces in getting those boosters into arms, which is happening. It also involves making sure that whether it's municipalities or provinces or private businesses, people are empowered to make the tough decisions that involve uh, keeping distances, uh, following public health guidelines, knowing that the government will continue to be there with supports as necessary that will allow us not just to get through this pandemic, but also uh, to, to, to have our economy bounce back stronger. One of the really big challenges you have as a prime minister is China. And one of the big moments for you this year was getting the two Michaels home. Take me to that moment on the tarmac when you saw them. It was um, extraordinarily um, emotional for me uh, to see them coming home and to know that they were coming home 
because of the fact that we stayed strong on our values, we stayed strong on the rule of law, we didn't make any side or backroom deals, we said no, we are a country of the rule of law and we're going to model that. And we got countries around the world to bring up the case of the two Canadians every time they were speaking with Chinese leadership, which uh, was extremely impactful uh, on the Chinese in wanting to look for a solution on this. But that one moment that touched me perhaps more than anything else was when uh, Michael Kovrig turned to me and said, thank you for getting me home, but thank you also for staying true to what Canada is and stands for as one of the good guys while you were doing everything you could to get us home. That must have been such a burden lifted for you. It was, it was, it was surprisingly emotional on a personal level because as a leader, as a prime minister, you want to do the right thing. You, you, you know what the right thing is, but there's a human cost. These two Canadians were stuck in terrible conditions, totally arbitrarily. And there was at least a theoretical way of me taking shortcuts and backroom deals to Trains. get them home. But I, I knew and I felt that you had to do the right thing. And we stayed the course on the right thing. And to hear one of the Michaels say to me, um, you did the right thing, was, was satisfying on a personal level in ways that, uh, that surprised even me. I, I can imagine to, to hear him say that and to make your decisions going forward because China's not going to back off. When like-minded countries pull together, when we align, when we coordinate, when we, uh, when we show a united front. Because one of the challenges that we've had as a Western world is that we're, we compete with each other. We're trying to say, oh, could we get better access for Canadian beef than Australian beef to this country or that market? There's been a bit of competition amongst friends because we're capitalist democracies on trying to do well, especially given the extraordinary economic opportunity of uh, the rising Chinese middle class. So how do we access that? Well, we've been competing and China has been from time to time very cleverly playing us off each other in an in a open market competitive way. We need to do a better job of working together and standing strong so that China can't you know, play the angles and divide us one against the other. And quite frankly, on the issue of arbitrary detentions, where we saw dozens upon dozens of countries signing on to this in a, in a very real way, declaring that no, coercive diplomacy is not all right, um, those kinds of initiatives do make a difference. So what's your strategy going forward? Because I think everyone understood that while the two Michaels were in custody, you were a little bit handcuffed on what you could do because there's two Canadians whose lives are at stake. They're home now. What's the way forward for Canada? The way forward is to, to first of all, be pleased that the Michaels are home, but also to be wise to the fact that the China that did that is no longer the China that we thought about 10 years ago or even five years ago in some ways. And we have to be you know, alert to that possibility, but also to that mind frame that they have moving forward, which means there are things we're going to have to continue to challenge China on. Human rights, democracy in, in Hong Kong, uh, you know, supports for, for journalists, uh, you know, non-interference in, in, in 
the, the goings on of, of uh, you know, independent countries in Asia. These sorts of things are really important for us. Um, but there are ways in which we're going to have to compete with China, uh, whether it's on the commercial level, on trade deals, on, on, on goods and services, uh, being thoughtful around that. And then there are ways in which we're going to want to work with China. Think about climate change, for example, where they are going to be a significant player if we're going to be able to decarbonize uh, our global economy. They have to be part of it. So all these different nuances are going to continue but I think we're going into it with a very vivid understanding of the way modern China operates. Coming up, we'll have more of my conversation with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau right after this. Welcome back. My one-on-one -on -one with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau continues with a look at Canada's role in the world from fighting U.S. protectionism to calling an election during the fall of Afghanistan. We will continue to work over the coming months uh, to resettle refugees. Here's the second part of my conversation with the Prime Minister. You have to operate in a world now where Canada doesn't have the buffer zone that we used to. It was, you know, three oceans and the United States. Donald Trump's presidency tra changed that. Joe Biden, much friendlier, obviously, with you, but still by America uh, and very protectionist. With climate change, the Arctic is opening up. You're seeing a more aggressive China, a more aggressive Russia. How do you insulate Canada when you don't have some of those protections and fallbacks that previous prime ministers did? Well, the, the first part, and, and, and yes, the, the global context is shifting, but you know we still have three oceans and, uh, and, and uh, a strong ally in the United States. Uh, the flavors are shifting a little bit, but um, we are in extremely good position. But the one thing that has always served Canada and indeed a lot of middle powers in the world is multilateralism, is working with like-minded countries, is aligning our focus, our initiatives, our measures forward, knowing that no country is able to go it alone. And quite frankly, what we're seeing and what we saw through the past four years of, of the United States under Trump is that even the U.S., uh, when it tries to go alone, isn't able to truly go it alone. And, and where uh, President Biden continues to deal with real challenges internally, domestically, and polarization, and, and all sorts of things he's having to deal with. He is also uh, returning uh, to a certain level of engagement and collaboration and alignment with partners. When it comes to foreign affairs, one of the big things that I doubt anyone saw coming uh, in terms of dominating the election was Afghanistan. Mm. And your government was very heavily criticized for calling an election. There was allegations that ministers weren't paying attention, that they were busy campaigning. Is there anything you regret about how you handled that? Election or no election, um, we did everything we could to accelerate the uh, the evacuation of Canadians and, and Canadian supporters from Afghanistan. Um, I think the entire world, and I've talked with a number of our allies in Europe and elsewhere, who were caught extremely off guard with how quickly things uh, got out of but control. But the intelligence in was there two, three months in advance, warning that the fall was happening. We far knew it was coming. We didn't know it was going to be this fast. Nobody knew it was going to be this fast. So the response we had, I mean, Canada uh, responded well, other countries responded well. It still wasn't enough to stave off the humanitarian tragedy of the Taliban taking control. And that's where 
the efforts we did throughout the month of August to evacuate thousands of people um, need to continue now, and they continue. A, a, a plane landed, uh, you know, recently uh, with hundreds of Afghan refugees on. Uh, we're continuing to bring more people in. We've had about 4,000 come in. We are on our way to welcoming in 40,000 Afghan refugees uh, in the coming year or two. Uh, Two years but is a long time if the Taliban's trying to kill you right it now. It is a long time, and that's why we're trying to accelerate as much as we possibly can, and why we're working with allies uh, to put pressure on the Taliban to allow people to leave uh, Afghanistan. And uh, it's going to be a very difficult winter for people in Afghanistan, and it's heartbreaking for Canadians, including and especially the Canadians who uh, served alongside uh, many extraordinary Afghan citizens who were there, not just supporting Canadians, but fighting for a better future for their country, for their sisters, for their daughters, that are now uh, facing this horrific setback. And it is something quite extraordinary, the level to which Canadians are willing to open up our communities, our homes, to welcome in Afghan refugees more than any other country in the world. Our targets are higher, our will is greater to resettle, and at the same time, we need to continue to do the humanitarian and development supports that are going to bring uh, Afghans uh, into a place of stability while we work around, as much as possible, uh, the Taliban government that are terrorists. When it comes to the military, military sexual misconduct, something that you and I have talked a lot about this year, two of the top commanders in the Canadian Armed Forces, both accused of sexual misconduct. There has been general after general after admiral who has had to step aside. How did you not know that there was a problem in the military before the story broke? I think, well, the, the Deschamps report made clear that there was a problem in the armed forces. Uh, I think there was a lot of faith that Operation Valor uh, of the past years was making progress on this, but it took, it took uh, some extraordinarily powerful stories about some of the highest placed individuals, stories that uh, you and your colleagues specifically were uh, spearheading. Uh, to understand the depth and the scale of the culture challenge in our armed forces. The fact that we have such respect for the women and men of the armed forces who have our backs that it is difficult for all of us to realize that we haven't had their backs. That we have allowed a culture of command and, and an environment in the military that is not worthy of those young people who choose to step forward and serve, or of the parents who are so proud to send and see their kids join our armed forces. And that is something that all Canadians have to reckon with, but especially uh, our government, which is why we made an apology, but mostly... Well, it was a court-mandated apology. But it, the apology is an important thing, but more important is the action we take to put women and men at the centre of what we're doing, uh, the survivors uh, who need the support, the people who choose to serve, because not only do we need to fix the culture in the military, we need our military to keep growing, to keep being able to serve Canadians in the extreme weather events and around the world. And the challenges of recruitment right now, uh, when people see the, the environment and the culture there, is, is really, really concerning. 
And that's why, whether it's uh, the work that Justice Arbour is doing or Lieutenant General Carignan is doing, uh, and all the efforts that even uh, the Chief of Defense, the new Chief of De Defense Staff, uh, the Vice Chief of Defense Staff, who's the first woman in the role, or, or Minister Anand, that they are working on to transform this in a way that for the first time in a long time for many people within the military feels real. But there's so much more to do, as you know. After the break, more from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on his government's response to military sexual misconduct. The military sexual misconduct scandal rocked the Canadian forces and plunged the military into a leadership crisis. The Prime Minister gets candid about the need for culture change and his regrets about not doing more earlier in the final part of our conversation. Why did you never hold anybody in your office or your minister accountable for what happened? Because people knew, they heard the rumours. Why was it that you were never willing to actually put that accountability on the elected government's shoulders for what they didn't look into? Listen, there's always ways of looking back on, on what could have or should have been done differently. But the fact is, Minister Sajjan, uh, who is a, himself a, a decorated uh, soldier, uh, who was a, a member of the police uh, before that, um, had fought all his life against the kind of intolerance and old boys network that we know was part of the problem in the military. And I had and I have confidence in him uh, to continue to fight to do, do the right really thing. Do you really think he did a good job? I think it was an impossible job and I think he did uh, a good job. Yes, I do. I think, I think given the context that he was faced with, given the situation and the depth of the challenges in the armed forces, um, he set us up for the success that we're uh, going to be having over the coming years. Should he have told you? Do you think he should have said, hey, you're sitting down with this chief of the defense staff, I actually have some pretty serious concerns about what his behavior might be? I don't want to get into um, the details of things that are you know, continuing to be investigated and, and, and appear before the courts. But I know Harj Sajjan. I know uh, the extraordinary people uh, in the armed forces who want to see change happen. Uh, I know uh, the people who are working on it now uh, are deeply committed to creating that culture change that despite all the words being said about trying to do this over the past decades um, is now happening for real and what uh, Justice Arbour uh, is moving forward with is not just another report but is a concrete implement implementation plan uh, that pulls together all the different recommendations and says, okay, you can do this, you can do this, which is why when she came out just a few weeks ago and said, okay, uh, next thing you should do is take all the sexual misconduct cases out of the military justice system and put them in the civilian courts, we're doing that right now. Those sorts of measures that aren't just, okay, accepting a recommendation of a report, but taking concrete actions that are going to transform our military in ways that put uh, the, the women and men who serve at the center of it, survivors at the center the of it. Concrete actions you could have taken six years ago. Mm hmm. Yes. 
And looking back, there's always things that we wish we had done more and faster. But when the very top levels of the military are insisting that there is no problem, um, it is a challenge for any government to say, uh, okay, you're wrong, we're going to get rid of all of you, we're going to bring in an entirely new system. It took uh, a crisis, unfortunately, because I wish it hadn't. I wish that the women who came forward and, and showed extraordinary strength and bravery on top of having had to go through things that are unacceptable didn't have to be the, the instigators fighting for uh, all their other brothers and sisters who uh, continue to suffer in silence. But that's what it took, and I am so grateful for them, and I will continue uh, to do right by the courage they had in moving forward to say there needs to be a change. I wish we'd done it 10 years ago. I wish we'd done it 50 years ago, but we're doing it now. How do you feel when you think back to some of those meetings you had with those chiefs of the defense staff? One of my very first volunteer jobs or volunteer engagements uh, when I was back at McGill as a university student was with the Sexual Assault Center of McGill Student Society. Um, the idea of uh, consent, of date rape, of, of sexual misconduct in academic institution uh, was something that 25 years later I see we haven't made much progress on and I really genuinely believe when I was working on that 25, 30 years ago. We were going to see changes. It is unbelievably slow to make these changes, but they are happening. And I wish, I wish I could have done more. I wish I had, I, I wish I had been able to do more. I wish circumstances would have pushed us into it. But we are there now, and we are pushing as hard and as fast and with everything we can and we are being supported by extraordinary members of the armed forces from the inside who say about time thank you for doing it here is our support as well whether it's lieutenant general carignan or outside experts uh, or uh, people in in the mix who are finally bringing this about because it's not just about ending sexual misconduct in the military although that in itself is a huge thing it's also about understanding that a modern military needs to do a better job of valuing and respecting every individual in their full diversity uh, within the armed forces. And yes, there'll always be command structures and always be hierarchies. That's the way the military needs to work. But doing a better job of appreciating um, the value and respect for every individual who put up their hand, didn't have to, wasn't drafted in, said, I want to serve my country. Uh, by putting it all on the line for them, they are worthy of a level of respect and they are worthy of being seen in the fullness of who they are in a way that militaries all around the world, but the Canadian military is no exception, um, deserve to do a better job of because those men and women who serve, who choose to serve and their families deserve a hell of a lot more. And Canadians deserve to have the people who have our backs be properly supported as they're doing it. Prime Minister Trudeau, thank you so much for joining us. Happy birthday. Thank Merry you, Christmas to you and your family. Merry Christmas to you as well. That's our show for today. Thank you for spending your time with us, and we'll be right back here again next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block.